Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. Deck maintenance isn't fun. Move the furniture and barbecue, sand and prep, paint, seal, or get a low-maintenance Trex deck. The only colour fade you'll have to deal with is watching the sunset. Trex, the world's number one decking brand. Welcome in again to Trailblazers for another week, where my guest today is one of our great football ferns. Uh, three World Cups, couple of Olympic Games, 100 internationals, and now doing very big things in the world of football off the field with a role in uh, at the Global uh, Players Association FIFA Pro. Welcome to Trailblazers, Sarah Gregorius. Gregorius, that's a good start. I'll get your name right. Sarah Gregorius, how are you? I'm good, and that's fine. I It's also just super highly embarrassing like having yourself introduced um any day of the week anyway but thank you for those kind words I um it's it's nice it's nice to hear and it's nice to be here speaking with you it's it's weird isn't it when you you, people rattle off your cv and you try and not to crawl crawl into a into a cringe yes exactly that's that's the word crawl into a cringe is exactly how I feel whenever (laughs) someone does that Well, I'm probably going to make it worse now because I'm actually going to say what your proper role, and we'll start with what you're doing now, then we'll go back to your great football career. Um, Director, Global Policy and Strategic Relation Women's Football at FIFPro. Now, that is a title, if ever I've heard one. (laughs) What does that mean? Oh, good question. Maybe I'm still trying to figure that out for myself. So basically... Thief Pro, how can I describe Thief Pro? It's the Global Players Union. So we, we're we a bit like, um, yeah, we're a global governing body with a, around sort of 65 plus affiliates and member associations or member unions and player associations around the world. And we have a, a policy and strategy team and, and I'm the director of that with a, I suppose, a, a view or responsibility on women's football. So I don't know if that actually makes it any more clear what I do, actually, now that I think about it. But, yeah, that, that's basically it. So understanding a little bit the world of football, the world of player associations and football, and then the bubble that I occupy. So you're kind of, you, you FIFA Pro, like, say, the Rugby Players Association, the international ones, all that, you, you work on behalf of players. So are you working with governing bodies, you're working with FIFA um, and, and the various confederations as well to kind of push the cause of, of the players? Yeah, actually, you should come work for us. You've nailed it. <laughs> Sweet, cool, sign me yeah, up. No, that's, um, re- that's really it in a nutshell. So, yeah, I suppose maybe the, the body that everyone in New Zealand is familiar with is the Rugby Players Association. So New Zealand also has an NZPFA, so New Zealand Professional Footballers Association. We're the governing body of, of that crowd. Um, yeah, and working uh, across the table from – yeah, the confederations, the UEFA, CONCACAF, Comnebol, and and then obviously FIFA as our direct counterpart uh, in that regard too. So you're based in the Netherlands now, is that right? Yeah, I live in Amsterdam, um, which is cool. Uh, most of the international footballing governing bodies are in Switzerland, but I hear that's not as exciting as perhaps living in Amsterdam. So I'm happy I chose one in a bit of a cooler city. Exactly. So, so how have you ended up there, Sarah? How has this role come about? 
Well, I mean, then then we kind of do have to go back a little bit to my playing career. So when I was in the football ferns, I was a, a little, not a not a troublemaker per se, but I was probably the I was the person that um, my teammates sort of put forward or, or looked towards whenever we had an, an issue, particularly with New Zealand football or like an interest that we wanted to uh, progress on behalf of the players. And that obviously brought me, well, brought me to the attention of New Zealand football, <laughs> um, but it also brought me to the attention of the New Zealand PFA, so the, the body that I just mentioned before. And so at, when I was playing, I was kind of, I suppose, the liaison or, or the, the person that was sort of the interface between the team and, and our uh, player association which then sort of got me in front of FIFA Pro and got me in front of, particularly in front of um, Division Asia Oceania, which is one of, of the divisions of FIFA Pro. And then sort of, I suppose, got in front of a couple of different people who thought, oh, yeah, we, we, don't, we don't mind a troublemaker, actually. She sounds fun. And then sort of carried on throughout my career. And as I was getting towards the end of it, I was um, at, at the Women's World Cup in 2019 in France, and FIFA Pro had got in contact with me about coming to like a player council meeting uh, at the end of the tournament. So I did that, went along to that. And while I was there, they sort of ambushed me and were like, hey, do you fancy like working for us? So I thought about it. I was like, yeah, cool. That sounds interesting. It sounds right. I used to sort of start to think it. I was already starting to think about sort of life after football. Um, and then I was like, okay, what's it about? And how do I apply? And they're like, no, we don't want you to apply. We just want you to move to Amsterdam and start working for us. So that sort of helped me, I suppose, make my mind up about stepping away from, from my football career. Uh, and then so I got back from, from the World Cup, I think, in sort of late July, early August of 2019. And I started at FIFA Pro at the end of September 2019. The current job I'm in now, so the one with the unbelievably lengthy title, uh, I've only actually been in that position since uh, June of last year when, yeah, they decided to give me a, a promotion and said, you know what, troublemaker, we'll um, put you on an even bigger stage and give you even more responsibility. Wow. Do, have you sometimes, like it's, have you sometimes gone from, you know, as you say, you're still playing to this to go, how has this happened so quickly or whatever? Or, you know, is it is it been a whirlwind or have you like, no, I set out, this is the sort of stuff I set out to do and I'm blimmin' well going to do it? A little bit of a combination. Could I have predicted it? No. Has it been a whirlwind? Yes. But at the same time, I'm so privileged to be in a position where I can put all of my experience as a player, all of my interests as a person I think also my, without sounding like too waffly are we, but also a little bit of my sense of inherent like want for justice and things like that because defending player rights sometimes really feels like social justice work. Um, it's sort of been, it's, I'm, I'm very fortunate to be in a bit of a sweet spot uh, with this job right now. But again, I, it was just off the back of firstly, my teammates really trusting me to play a certain role within the team. Uh, I definitely have always been lucky in the sense I've had people around me who have been very encouraging, even though I wouldn't have necessarily still to this day thought that I would be the type of person that could fill a role like this. Um, but fortunately, despite me constantly asking people, are you sure? Uh, they've, they've managed to push ahead um, and have some some faith and confidence in me. So 
I do sometimes I do wake up and I feel a little bit like um you know what you hear a lot of people say feeling that kind of imposter syndrome but at the same time I I do I do really trust the people that trust me so some days I feel okay about it yeah where has that sense of uh well a the troublemaker side but 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 b I guess that sense of of social justice or or seeing a cause and knowing a, a good right what's right and wrong so clearly in a sporting sense where has that come from I'm not too sure I think you know what's sometimes interesting particularly if you're a woman playing sports um sometimes the mere act of your existence is seen as a bit of a rebellion so some I actually think a lot of like women's football is a lot of female athletes kind of have that anyway because you're already bucking the trend just by being a woman who decides that she really likes sports wants to play it and wants to be a professional and be elite at it so I think that's part of it I think even more simplistically I have two brothers an older brother and a younger brother I had to fight and scrap for everything and that was my early sense of justice right I was like okay I'm on a good day, I'm five foot two. I'm not very big. Um, both my brothers are in and around six foot. If I want to get anywhere, I have to kind of fight and scrap and have a bit of resilience, right? And and work in a way to kind of make sure that I can, yeah, survive, I suppose, um, which, you know, wonderful family dynamics growing up. I love them to bits. But, you know, I sort of always had a bit maybe of this chip on my shoulder um, because, yeah, I had to sort of fight for every scrap of food. Um, and then I, I just think as as I've gone through my career and particularly early on, I would just see things in and around the sport, in and around like I suppose just the world and just have a feeling of, man, that's really unfair and that's been really tough and I'd really like it if other people don't have to experience that. So what can I do? to kind of create an environment where there's less resistance, there's less barriers for people. And obviously I, um, you know, I have brown skin as well, which brings its own sort of challenges sometimes as you move through the world. So I think it's a combination of just who I am as a person, a little bit my upbringing, but certainly um, what I've been exposed to through playing sport and then just feeling like, I don't know. You know what? I don't particularly like that. I wonder if I can change it. Mm. The number of women I've had on the show who have said, I've got brothers and <laughs> that's how I've ended up having to fight and scrap. Um, but, you know, being a troublemaker in a team setting, like rattling, and, and you use the word troublemaker, you're not a troublemaker, but, you know, <laughs> rattling cages is not easy. How did you find that going through, you know, your, in the early stages of your football career? And I guess as you get older, you find your voice a little bit more. Yeah, super, super challenging. And I, talk, particularly in my job now, I talk to a lot of players who, who sort of have that role within their various teams as well. And I'm, I always have a bit of warning. I'm like, I'm like, there are times when this is incredibly draining, and it can feel like you, you sometimes because you have to play the sport and you have to go out onto the field and and do your job but you know that things behind the scenes aren't as perfect as they could be. That can also be really challenging. You sort of have to put that to one side to do your job on the field and then when you're off the field kind of have to let go of sometimes the fear of being punished, you know, because you're deciding to take a stand or whatever, take a stand or whatever it might be. So it's, it's not easy. It's not always 
fun. Um, and I, I guess it's also not for everyone. So what I also say to, to a lot of players is you, you don't have to fight that fight if you don't want to. You know, it, it's not for everyone either. So it has been challenging at different points. I've had like a couple of times when I was playing where I just wouldn't want to live through that again, right, where you're trying to work through some pretty serious issues and it can take a bit of a toll. Um so yeah, I, I maybe sometimes I'm a little bit melancholic about it, uh, but at the same time, there wouldn't be anything about my even this is a bit of an overused word, but anything about my my journey <laughs> that I would change at this point as well, because it's it's also been a huge. Um, I really found my my identity in playing those roles as well. What what is um your day to day kind of role entail? Like right now, you're in, at a conference in London. Yes. Um, you know, you get to, I'd imagine you get to trip around and see, see various places too. What do you, what do you do day to day? Yeah, it, that's also not the easiest question to answer because every day is different and every week yeah. is different. Uh, it's an international organization. So there is a lot of travel. Uh, London is a bit of an easier one. I think in the past sort of three or four weeks, I've been down in Thailand, I've been across to the U S and, you know, different parts of Europe as well. So there's definitely a lot of travel and there's also a lot of things that you have to sort of juggle at once. When you work in the football industry, it can be both slow moving and really dynamic. Um, some of the institutions are really antiquated. They've been around for a long time. They've had leaders who have been around for a long time and their structures and their systems are quite rigid. So there's, there's that, and sometimes trying to change things requires patience, uh, particularly if you're trying to fight for sort of rather progressive issues. So there's a lot of strategy and policy and planning and meetings and discussions that can sometimes feel a little bit circular. But then on the other side, I spend a lot of time with players, and I spend a lot of time with player unions, and that's really cool because players, they're young and they're vibrant and they're dynamic, and they care, they're sort of values-driven, they're performance-driven, they really care about their environment and their performance and wanting to progress, and more and more these days they care about social issues. So I, I kind of have to operate in both worlds, right, because still in women's football there's a lot of sort of grassroots progress that needs to be made, and then you, you're also in this international elite environment dealing with some very big and some very powerful organizations and you're trying to push them to do certain things. But what I always say at the heart of what we do, Fief Pro is quite a values-driven organization and often we, we spend a lot of time trying to defend and promote the rights of players, not just as footballers and as employees but really as people as well because it it is an industry where you see a lot of exploitation, a lot of discrimination. And so some some days you'll be like negotiating terms for like a very elite competition. And then on the other side, you're like really talking about, okay, how do we evacuate a player from Ukraine, for example? How do we evacuate players from Afghanistan when the Taliban take over? So that's a very, very long-winded way of saying every day is different. <laughs> Every day. It sounds amazing. Uh, we'll take a quick break here on ECNZ Trailblazers, where my guest today is Sarah Gregorius. Back more in a moment. You're listening to Trailblazers with me, Ricky Swanell on SCNZ. My guest is footballer, former footballer, now working with FIFA Pro, the Football Players Association, effectively, Sarah Gregorius. Let's go right back, though. How did you find your way to football? Very accidentally. Um 
I was a bit of a late bloomer. I I did all like most kids growing up in New Zealand. I did a whole bunch of different things. I was into tennis. I did athletics. I did swimming. And then when I was sort of about 11 years old, a friend of mine invited me down to, she played football and she invited me down to her team's sort of end of year, end of season party. And it was just down the road from my house. I lived, my parents still live there, but close to a a football field or a a big field. And they were playing a game um, to kind of commemorate the end of the season. So she was like, why don't you come along? It's just down the road. We'll hang out. So I went down and, and I joined in the game. And I'll remember it probably for the rest of my life. I stood out on that field like I had never really played football before. My older brother had played, so I'd been around it a wee bit. And I just loved it. And I can just remember like properly falling in love with it like right at that moment during that game. And I went back home and I said, I think I want to play football next season. My mum and dad were like, yeah, that's fine. Do, Do whatever you want. And then that was it. That was the end of it. I dro- eventually dropped everything else. I just loved football and I played ever since. So it was, I think, my first season. I was 12 years old and took to it like a, I don't know, what's the expression? Like a duck to water, I suppose. What did you love about it? The team. I loved the team. I was pretty raw, obviously, in the beginning. I, I was sort of quite blessed with, I suppose, natural speed quite low to the ground so quite agile too and had that athletic background but I think what I loved was the team and the team dynamic and teamwork and I think that was that was really that seemed to be the difference maker between that and the sport football and the sports that I had played before. Hmm. I think you grew up in Lower Hutt? Upper Hutt. Upper Hutt, you're the Hutt. Yeah the Hutt. (laughs) What is I think you've you've got Dutch and Haitian heritage. What was it like growing up in in that sort of era as a kid with, as you say, brown skin and a different kind of surname yes. um, in that time? Yeah, look, and different kind of hair. Everything yeah. about me was like a little bit different. It was it was difficult because I think it's also not it's not a a background that people particularly other kids are necessary necessarily familiar with like how to, to sort of explain to people that yeah my mum's from Haiti what's Haiti where's Haiti oh, it's a it's an island in the Caribbean or where's the Caribbean oh well you know have you ever watched Cool Runnings like so trying to find ways to explain it was a bit of a challenge but that's also what I loved about football and what I loved about sport in general is it's it's an equalizer not not in the purest sense of the of the word, but if you were good at something, then your background didn't really matter that much at that moment. And I think also as a kid, particularly my parents put a bit of a bubble around us. Like I think I didn't really hear how difficult, particularly for my mum, her integration into New Zealand society. I didn't understand how difficult it was until I was obviously much older and then probably better equipped to understand it. And obviously it's it's something even even in the environment that I work in now, there aren't a lot of people running around with a Kiwi accent in the world of international football governance either, let alone women, let alone women with brown skin and curly hair. So I also at the end of the day, like my 
I only seem different to other people, I think, at times, whereas I'm fundamentally who I am. And yeah. I've always been different, whether I've been in Amsterdam or in the hut or sitting at a conference in London on stage talking about all sorts of different things. And then everyone's like, well, she's South African. Is she from the UK? Like, and not be, even being able to twig the accent and things like that. So, but, but I also quite like that. Um, in, in some ways. But, yeah, I think growing up that was also always also what was so good about sport is it's its own language in and of itself. It didn't really matter too much, like all of the other sort of characteristics that are maybe a little bit more visual. Hmm. Do you have a strong connection with your Haitian heritage? No, not really, to be honest. Um, I've never been there, for example. I think also it's not – how can I say this? It's also not really a, a country that is particularly tourist friendly sometimes as well. So it, it is difficult to have that connection. It's difficult to access the culture. I think it's also challenging for my mom, like for personal reasons as well. And she's obviously, she obviously moved away for a, for a particular reason and things like that. So it's not, it's not the easiest thing to connect to, which is I New Zealand culture really is the thing that I identify and familiarize myself with. But certainly now that I'm getting a little bit older and can maybe take those steps for myself, I'm quite interested to to find a way to connect to, to that huge part of who I am. Mm. Going back on, obviously, onto, onto the football side and having this sort of instant love and obviously some, some of the ability very early on. Did your career from taking it up as what an 11, 12-year-old progress pretty quickly? Because it can tend to fit for female footballers. You, you can go through the ranks pretty quickly at a young age. Yeah, it did. It did progress really fast into all of a sudden playing representative football and things like that. But then it didn't. At some point, I, I played, um, yeah, sort of age group national team football up until sort of the under 20 level. But then a lot of my teammates at that point kicked on to the national team, but I didn't. I didn't actually make my debut for New Zealand until I was yeah, again, a bit of a late bloomer. I think I was maybe like 23. Um, and that was a combination of not getting selected and also I had a couple of injury setbacks. So, yes, I progressed very quickly. And then all of a sudden I didn't. So it wasn't this linear pathway that I that sort of was the case for some of my teammates. But, again, I was fine with that. I was cool with it. It um, didn't stop me from going and doing other things. And, and again, like I said earlier about not wanting to change anything about kind of the path that I was on, it also meant that I, I finished my studies. I started working. And so I, I think by the time I cracked international and professional football, I had a different grounding. And I think that also gave me a certain level of objectivity to be the troublemaker in a way because I had this sort of broader perspective than someone that had been in the program from sort of the age of 11, 12, all the way through and, and never being able to step away from it. Mm. Do you remember your debut? Yeah, I do. I remember it. Am I allowed to swear on this or is it? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, okay. No. <laughs> yeah, I, I remember it because it was a shit show. Like, <laughs> I was all over the place because I had waited so long for the opportunity. Like, I was a little bit older and I'd worked so hard and really felt like, really felt like I 
it could be taken away from me at any second because it was so difficult to come by. I was a mess. I was, and my coach at the time, like, I remember I looked over to the side and he's like, calm down. Cause I was just running, like I was a blue ass fly, like just running everywhere. So actually like the more memorable game where I really felt like I settled in to actually being a football fan was game number two. Cause game number one was a write off. <laughs> Who were you playing? Who was the coach then? John Herdman? John Herdman was the coach. And it was the World Cup qualifiers. So we were playing against the Pacific Islands. I think my first game might have, it was either Tonga or Samoa, potentially one of the the two. So it was also like, no disrespect to them, but also these were games that we were winning quite comfortably. So there was no reason for me to be running around like a panicked idiot. You obviously you settled into things all right in the end. Um, Eventually. What it, what, yeah, what, so I got three World Cups, 2011, 2015, 2019, two Olympic Games, 2012 and, and 2016. When you reflect back on and all of those, and I think largely what jo, would have been John Herdman and, and Tony Reddings, the coaches, and, and a core of a squad that really did stay together for a long time. Uh, what kind of sticks out to you in that time? Well... <laughs> I mean, I I often get asked, like, what's the difference between the World Cup and the Olympics? And, you know, World Cup in terms of football really is the pinnacle. But Olympics is, like, really the thing that you identify with as, like, the fulfillment of a dream. Not even the fulfillment of a dream because I think for most kids growing up, being an Olympian seems miles away. It's like these these people, these athletes are on another planet. So actually, like in in the moment, sometimes you don't actually come to terms with what it is that you're doing because you're very process focused and, you know, you operate in these competition cycles and, and what John and Tony both did really well is they kept you very focused and as you were taking the steps along the journey, they never let you lose sight of what you were trying to build towards. It was a very process-oriented style, which I think is often the case in international um, football. And again, because it was, like you said, this core group of players that kind of moved through and all stuck together, you sort of, because you were also in that bubble of like this family environment with a lot of your really good mates, like just kicking the ball around in different parts of the globe and going on all of these little adventures and the sport was still not as much in the spotlight as it maybe is today or certainly the World Cup in 2011 didn't have the visibility around it that 2019 did. So essentially you sort of don't really get an appreciation for kind of what you were able to go out and experience until someone like you, Ricky, reads the bio back to you and then you think, oh, Jesus, I went to like couple of really really big monumental pinnacle events um so I think my my in the moment you sort of like you're concerned about what happens on the field and the game and things like that but now looking back I'm like especially at the Olympics I can't believe I was in that environment I can't believe I went to three world cups like now when I when I think about what my experience is going to be like next year when I go as like yeah this pencil pushing administrator but also a fan a genuine fan of like the ferns especially and you think oh yeah I I did that once and it's, it's kind of almost a schizophrenic sort of feeling really so I was super fortunate but I think also very much in a bubble because I did it with some of the best people and some of the best friends you know a person could ever wish for 
um, which gives it a, its own kind of special meaning, I think. You played um, club football in Japan. I really have read the bio, obviously, Japan, um, <laughs> Germany, and you played for Liverpool as well. Are you a Liverpool supporter? Were you a Liverpool supporter? Look, no. I Oh, thank God. There's so many Liverpool supporters in New Zealand. It's ridiculous. Yeah, <laughs> I think there's more Liverpool supporters outside of Liverpool than there are in Liverpool, to be honest. I know. Um, I, I have a funny – I'm a, apart from the fans – I don't really support anybody. I, I'm, I'm a bad fan. Like I was even at a like, and I, I was at a game last night as well. And I, yeah, I'm so Arsenal, Arsenal, Tottenham, ladies. Arsenal, Tottenham. Yeah. yeah, which which was great. But I also, I'm also, maybe it's I studied um, anthropology, so maybe it's a sociologist in me. I'm so fascinated by the idea of the fandom. So I spend half the game looking around, seeing what everyone else is doing, and like laughing at the chants and the banners and things like that because I don't feel that kind of connection because I don't have a club, I don't have like a community around it. I just I really like the sport, um, but. Nah, even playing at Liverpool didn't infuse me with this like diehard sort of up the reds till I die <laughs> kind of mentality, which you actually, never walk alone. a lot of my colleagues laugh at me in that regard. They're like, do you even like football? I'm like, I love football. What are you talking about? And they're like, why aren't you supporting so? And I'm like, because no. <laughs> you can probably just enjoy the games though. Like you can watch it. There's something about watching a game as a complete neutral in any sport, what makes it, what makes it great. Yeah, exactly. It's why everyone all of a sudden becomes a, a fan of some of the winter Olympic sports that you have no, I mean, you don't even know what's going on, but you love it because it's a spectacle. And you think, sure, lie on top of your friend and go down like on the skeleton luge <laughs> thing at 120 miles per hour. That's all good. I'm going to watch it and appreciate it because it's just incredible, but I don't understand it. And I'm not a fan, but I still love it. Yeah, for sure. Let's take another quick break here on ECNZ. You're listening to Trailblazers with my guest, Sarah Gregorius. You are listening to SENZ where it is Trailblazers with me, Ricky Swanell, and my guest, Sarah Gregorius. We're talking the world of football off and on the field. Sarah, you post the London Olympics 2012 and the football fans, as we were talking before, had this really core cool group. You were all getting international exposure, um, playing, you know, being picked up by good clubs and all of that. And then it sort of, it, I don't know, oh, this is me looking outside and maybe did things meander along a bit through maybe to 2015. Going back to your troublemaker, did New Zealand football miss a bit of a trick with where that team was at, where things could have been invested to and where it could have gone to? Yeah, of course they did. But to be fair to them, most federations do that. I've said I see it every single day of the week. There are a lot of federations that sleep on the potential of their women's national team and sleep on the potential of professional football as well. It's not just limited to national team football. I also think what I wouldn't underestimate is we still improved between 2015, mm. or 2011 to 2015. What we didn't factor in was the rate of improvement of everyone else. And so I also think it was always going to be a challenge for the playing group for New Zealand football to keep up with kind of the exponential growth of everyone else as well, particularly when it was happening in countries where the resources were much deeper. So you take yeah. England, for example, weren't getting anywhere near World Cups, let alone World Cup knockout rounds, and then all of a sudden invested sort of from 2011 onwards 
but could do it at a at a very rapid rate. And then they make they finished third in 2015 mm. in Canada and burst onto the scene and are now kind of experiencing, um, you know, the, the FA could also be accused of sort of meandering for a while as well. So I think definitely always there could have been things that New Zealand football did better. I, I And I'm, I'm definitely not someone that wants to ever let them off the hook, but I think there was also a, a rapid rate of improvement happening in other parts of the world where the pockets genuinely just were a little bit deeper than what New Zealand football had at the time. But I think my challenge sort of back then and also to them now looking into the World Cup next year is like, okay, maybe the resources aren't there, but New Zealand always finds a way to innovate. So that is the challenge. How do you innovate in an environment where maybe you are limited in some areas, but you still have if I look at the playing group right now and the playing group that I was part of, you know, in the, the 10 years that I had played, if you look at what everyone achieved individually, playing for some, playing and captaining some of the biggest mm. clubs in the world, unbelievable CVs, I, I don't think that we quite matched that potential with, you know, final product as a, as a national team. And so I think, Players were able to go away and innovate with their own careers, but New Zealand football didn't really find a way to innovate with the national team and to like kick on in certain areas. And then massive mistakes were made after Tony Reddings left as well. And we had Andreas Haraf come in and, and all of the things that unfolded within the federation there. So you saw that there was sort of deeply rooted systemic problems which definitely would have held the team back over the years. And you can't discount the fact that for a long time around the world, women's football was actively discriminated against. And maybe it didn't happen to as an, as extreme in, in as extreme ways in New Zealand, but it was it definitely was still present. It definitely was not given the investment and the time and the care and the love over a long period of time, even prior to the successful core group that we that we had um, back in 2011 to 2015 that, you know, I think really held progress back, not even for my generation, but for a lot of generations beforehand. Mm. You, I think you, after Rio, retired and then kind of came back when Andreas Haraf was in charge and, you know, a lot went down in that time of his period. Are those are there residual sort of scars from that time, or are we past it now in terms of the overall program? I mean, you know, I'm, I'm guess sure for individual players, it's still something that's you know sticks sticks as part of the, your careers. Yeah, I think individually, I in this was sort of what I said in the beginning that that to me that was a period of time that I would I never want to repeat or never want to go back to. It was awful. Yeah. It was like some of the hardest like moments of my life. So I think that that sticks with the player. It's become part of the DNA of the team, 100%. It's, it is part of the legacy because legacy is not always about everything that goes right. It's also about the, the parts of the journey that maybe are less savoury. So I think, I think people, the team will grapple with that for a really long time, but I, I do think some good steps have been taken. I just really feel that the proof will be in the pudding next year, really with the Women's World Cup and, and whether or not 
the organization New Zealand Football and the and the other organizations around it will see that opportunity to create a new legacy and to start like really different progressive chapters but yeah for me and maybe it's because I I was really close to it and I had I came back into the team like under you know I I stepped away for a while for different reasons and then came back because you know I wanted to be part of a change which was also linked to you know we had the equal agreements um with the federation as well New Zealand football and it seemed yeah, like I'd worked really hard on that and they'd asked me to return. Um, but it was, yeah, it, it's even looking back now, it's such a strange thing to have gone through. And I think it makes it actually really difficult for me to give an objective assessment um, on on the health of the team post Andreas, because for me personally, it was, yeah, it was, it was so fundamentally difficult. Um, and I think I've lost a lot of objectivity in that sense um, to really be able to evaluate if the team ha- has moved on or is, you know, maybe it's become a positive p- part of like the trajectory now. I- I'm not too sure because for me it was just, it was so challenging. And I think I, I view it through not necessarily a negative lens, but certainly through a very personal lens, which makes it mm. kind of difficult to give a grading or an evaluation that doesn't that isn't tinged by by what I um sort of was part of myself yeah well thank you for yeah I know I know it's difficult to sort of think through these things and we and we saw I mean football was probably the first and then we saw it we saw it with the women's black sticks we've seen it just recently now with Mm. the black ferns I mean do you have any thoughts on how and why these things have bubbled along in a lot of sports in the last couple of years and I guess come to the fore in New Zealand since sort of 20, probably 2016, 2017 onwards? You know what, like without getting too philosophical about these things, but we, we're living in an, in an information age and where actually there's, if you want to tell a story, there are less things in the way between what you experience as an individual and you actually getting to a point of telling that story because of social media basically Mm -hmm. pretty much so you 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 can just be very forthright in a way that you can't before and you can get without having an intermediary which has normally been the media for example or you know an organization or a federation whatever it may be being kind of a buffer or you know you needing to access that platform to do anything I I have this and that, that's, that was really the spark with the Black Ferns, I think, as well. And so I think you, organizations cannot exist in the shadows anymore and they cannot treat athletes in a way, in these certain ways, because the risk of exposure is higher than it's ever been. I wouldn't necessarily say that that played a role for us as the Ferns, but I think you, we've sort of gone through this process of like unpicking some of the facade right, where you can be a bit more honest, you can be a bit more authentic, and you can, like, there's a shorter line or a shorter, yeah, a shorter path to access remedy maybe is is another way of putting it because you can expose things. So I, I think we're also living kind of in a time where, yeah, you just you just can't get away with what you could get away with in the past. And I also think, like, pretty Again, full credit to the media as well and full credit to just society. Hang on. 
But what what society and the society is is driving this for the media as well. What people are willing to put up with is not what it was in the past either. So, and this is what I'm seeing a lot in my job in football is, okay, you might get an organisation that is not that interested in doing the right thing, but they are reliant on sponsors who have an interest in only sponsoring or commercially supporting organisations that are meeting certain values, right? So I think everything around it is shifting too, which makes it interesting. I think when you start to add revenue or profitability or finances to human rights, it's very interesting. Mm -hmm. It's a totally different space to be in. So I think particularly for like women's sports, which has been primarily marginalised, women have been primarily marginalized that's changing that sort of it's coming to be more and more mainstream and you also have different communication tools and you have different like shifting consumer dynamics where the consumers are more discerning and they they want to be connected to athletes they want to be connected to players and understand that journey a little bit more if you really want to understand the journey of a player particularly a, a female athlete man there's there's some shit under the rug that's not great and people are being held to account as a result of that. Again, I, I'm I'm probably noticed I, I have a, a tendency to give really long-winded answers to maybe pretty straightforward questions, but I just think that the world is different. It's yep. different, and it it, it the change is exponential. We're, we're so like the World Cup. I keep hammering football because it's it's the, the mode that I'm in. The World Cup next year. It's going to be fundamentally different to France because the growth is so rapid, even though we lost two years to COVID. Mm. We'll come back in a moment and talk about that upcoming 2023 FIFA Women's World Cup in New Zealand and Australia uh, shortly with my guest, Sarah Gregorius. You are listening to Trailblazers on SCNZ. We still have a little bit more time with my guest, Sarah Gregorius. We've covered a lot of amazing stuff, and I thank you for being so thoughtful on so many things. There are some cool things happening in women's football as well, um, and obviously next year, the 2023 FIFA Women's World Cup in New Zealand and Australia. Does New Zealand know what's coming? No. That's the shortest answer I'll give you for the whole interview. No. It does not know what's coming. Really, it's going to be massive. What can you give us a sense? Like, because tw- the 2019 World Cup in France, and I happened to be there for a little bit of that, and I was like, "Well, this is different to anything I've seen before." What, like, what? What can you give us a taste of of what it might be like? I don't think, and I actually think it's a good thing for the most part, and I'm grateful for it. I don't think New Zealand really understands how big football is. Yeah, for a start. I also don't think. So even logistically and operationally, France had 24 teams. 2023, Australia, New Zealand, 32. We're going to have eight more countries coming. So logistically, operationally, it's, it's, it's bigger than any like women's sporting event, standalone women's sporting event has ever been before. Massive. You are, like New Zealand will have walking around in our training fields, in our facilities, some of the world's biggest athletes. People people like Lucy Bronze, Ada Hegerberg, Alexia Patelis, these women are like superstars. And you'll be blown away by, first of all, their level of ability. I've watched these women in real, real life. I'm telling you, they're extraordinary. I think the spectacle on the field, New Zealanders being a sports-loving nation are just going to fall in love 
with these athletes and with this sport. But get ready for the circus because everyone is going to descend. Every international stakeholder, every bandwagon jumper, because there's a lot of them now because women's football is so big, every fan, pundit, like broadcaster, media, I mean, it's going to be massive because we're just at this inflection point in the sport of like it's it's about to really, and I know it gets a lot, but it's really about to take off and every World Cup blows people away. But I think this one in particular, and I think also like Kiwis, be ready to feel a lot of love because yeah, we are a country that is really idolized around the world for a bunch of different reasons. So people are chomping at the bit to come along and see what New Zealand is really all about. And they're going to really love you guys. And it might be annoying for the most part, but I think it'll also be a lot of fun. I think every single person will be profoundly affected by like, you know, that sort of four to six weeks of competition next year. There is just so much genuine buzz and excitement for New Zealand as a country. New Zealand is a host of this event and the event itself. Also Australia, heaps of love to Australia. But I, I don't know. I just feel like get ready for the ride because it's going to be cool. But maybe it's a good thing that we're not necessarily ready for it. No, you've like I've literally got. I'm, you've just made me so excited. Um, <laughs> just, just talking about like because there's some like yes, there's still issues, right? But there's some really cool things happening. Barcelona women have had what 90,000 90, strong crowds the last couple of times. Um, Angel City in the States doing something completely different as an ownership model and with a Kiwi as the captain, Ali Riley. Um, yes. Lewis see here, they do something completely different too. Like what sort of changes in growth and, and as you said, talked about before, innovation are we seeing? Uh, huge. I think Angel City is a really interesting one, especially if you mm. match that up with Barcelona. Angel City is a standalone women's football franchise. Doesn't have, it's brand new, it's purpose-built just for this team that Ali is captaining, playing in like this, probably one of the glamorous like places on earth with this star-studded ownership group driven on values of like feminism and equality and like progressive, like it's, oh, it's awesome. And then you have Barcelona which is not famous for women's football. It's it's very it's this very entrenched, macho club of success for the men's team and everything, you know, you think everything about it is quite masculine in that regard. But they just set two world records. They broke their own world record mm. recently with attendance. Their team, the Barcelona women's team, is phenomenal. The, the players, the way they play, like individually, collectively, they're brilliant. And so you, what I love at the minute is you have success in both areas. What Angel City are proving is that you do not need to be reliant on this sort of parent men's club in order to crack it in women's football. And then Barcelona are proving that you can be unbelievably successful in both. One does not negate the other. You, you don't have to be standalone and fully focused on women's football to have success, but you also can be part of this umbrella organization with this very iconic badge playing in this very iconic stadium and fill it for both. You can fill it for the men's team and the women's team. So what I love is we're proving like both things can be true and both things can be true at the same time, which is so exciting because you don't have to pick and choose anymore. You don't have to be fully reliant on 
a men's football club opening its wallet and facilitating a women's program. You don't have to wait for that. But if that happens, it can be unbelievably successful. But you can also do this standalone progressive model built by women for women for success in women's sport. I I mean, you can hear I'm a very passionate person about the possibilities, but like I really think I have sometimes I wake up and I'm like, oh, I'm, yes, there's so many things that we still need to get better at and do better. A lot of things need to change. But then if you if you see the progress, if you see the possibilities and the way that the possibilities are being actualized every year, something else is coming along and, and blowing the minds of people, then you're like, okay, I'm going to stick with this job. I, I actually quite like it. <laughs> I was going to say, we well, better let you go. But what is it? What is it that drives you along every day um, in this role, in this global important role that you are doing? Coffee, um, I suppose, drives me. <laughs> I mean, caffeine helps. But no, I think. Look, I'm. Yes, I'm impatient. Yes, I get frustrated. But I'm also very passionate really believe in the potential of the sport I think if I'm being honest what really drives me is the people and the people really being the players and the people being the fans and the people that really love the sport and the part that frustrates me is institutions getting in the way of fans and players just living and breathing their dreams and living and breathing football and just loving life through the game that, that's the part that bothers me, but then at the same time, being able to affect change and maybe be part of a different type of story and a different type of future and just helping football realise its potential is is a real driver. And I think also for me at an individual level, in the sports governance space, there aren't a lot of people, like I said before, that look like me, sound like me and have, well, basically a woman. So I'm also driven, like, I also understand that, yes, some days are really hard. They're hard for me at a personal level because I go into a lot of different rooms and I don't see a lot of people that look like me, and that's really challenging. So you're constantly sort of trying to have to prove yourself and trying to have to prove that you belong. But if I do that, then the person that comes next doesn't have to do that maybe as much, probably still a little bit, but maybe not as much. So I also like being part of, the changing face of sport and football itself, that comes sometimes I really don't like that. I'm like, why do I have to do that? I'm sick of it and this is shit and I hate it. And then other days I'm like, no, it's okay. Like, because if you opt out of this, then it's never going to get easier and it's never going to change. But I think I just I just really believe in the potential of sport. I really believe in the potential of, of football. And I actually can't imagine – a job that doesn't really tap into all of the different things that this one taps into for me. Sarah, long live the troublemakers. <laughs> and thank you for uh, just that uh, I can hear your passion and your thoughtfulness. And next time we do this, I will figure out how we can do it in person even when we're in the same city yeah <laughs> and uh, we'll, we'll do it when you know when the football world cup comes to new zealand it has been absolutely awesome chatting to you sarah gregorius on trailblazers today thank you that was cool